Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Nahum, selected verses from chapters 1, 2, and 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? This is God's word. Amen. I asked Susan when I saw her, how are you doing? She said, dandy. I said, until after you read that, you'll no longer be dandy. Uh, It is sobering. Uh, Good morning. My name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, And we're in a series on the Old Testament. 
Uh, We're finishing up with the so-called minor prophets uh, as we work our way through the fall in the lead-up to Advent. Uh, And through this portion of the larger series on the story of the Old Testament, we've been asking in particular with the prophets how a particular prophet's message can help us develop what we're calling a top-down rather than a bottom-up way of looking at life. That is, Christians are people who view their circumstances through the lens of what they know or what they believe about God rather than the other way around. And it's especially hard to do that when you're facing hard times, trying times. And so, as we've talked about the last few weeks, we need a theology, we need a belief system about God that's strong enough to motivate us toward obedience. We need an unwavering faith in God and his character, especially uh, when life's storms are swirling around us. So this week, we're going to look at what we learn from the book of Nahum, the prophet uh, that comes after Micah, before Habakkuk, one that some of you may have read in the past, some of you may have never heard of, uh, and after reading those selected verses, you may not want to hear uh, anything about it. Uh, it is stark, it is sobering. Uh, a bit of the background will help you, uh, or will help us make a little more sense of this. Uh, this is the second prophet whose message has been aimed at the city of Nineveh. Uh, and the, the focus of Nahum's prophecy is the destruction of the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian kingdom. Uh, it was destroyed in the year 612. Nahum, or Nahum I keep wanting to say Nehemiah. Nahum uh, prophesied around 630, 640. So it was in the lead up to that. But the decline of the Assyrian Empire really started with the death of their king named Esarhaddon, who in order to maintain power and keep this smaller kingdom at the time, the Babylonian kingdom, at bay, uh, he appointed one of his sons to take the throne of Assyria and the other to take the throne of Babylon. But everybody knew that Babylon was subject to Assyria, and so Babylon had developed this inferiority complex, and so the son who was king of Babylon developed an inferiority complex against his older brother. And for about 10 years, the arrangement worked. Uh, But after that 10 years, the empire began to crumble. And Nahum's prophecy comes about 100 years or so after Jonah's preaching in the city of Nineveh. So two weeks ago, you heard about Jonah. And you heard about the city of Nineveh repenting. And here, two weeks later, we're reading what Nahum says concerning the destruction of Nineveh. So whatever repentance the city the people, even the king, as you read about in the book of Jonah, had displayed, has long dissipated, and the brutal, barbaric practices of the Assyrians are about to be stopped forever. Remember, uh, this book is written in the lead-up to the fall of Assyria, and this guy, Nahum, from the country bumpkin region of Judah, okay, speaking about the mighty Assyrian Empire falling, had to have been the most ludicrous thing that people had ever heard. It it would have been absolute fantasy to the people of Judah. But his goal for the Judeans who originally were hearing and reading this, as for us, his goal was a message of comfort, a long-awaited message of hope. God was going to act on their behalf The shadow of Assyrian oppression would be coming to an end. In fact, 
What you may be interested to find out is the, the word Nahum in Hebrew means compassion. It means comfort. And so compassion's message communicated the compassion of God for his people in the destruction of their enemies. As God's people felt like their circumstances were insurmountable and their enemy was inching ever closer to Jerusalem, God says, trust in my power and my might and I will deliver my people. What you, you may have picked up on as Susan was reading is this, this is a back and forth. He's talking to the people of Judah. He's talking to Nineveh. He's talking to Judah. He's talking to Nineveh. Back and forth throughout the book, it goes. Uh, and so I want you to look at the outline there that you should have in your worship folder uh, as we get into this. I want to simply look today at three things that we learn about God from this book. First, he's a jealous and avenging God. The picture that particularly the first six verses or so, as well as even into chapter 3, but really the whole book, give us. And, and what does that tell us about him? But secondly, not only is he a jealous and avenging God, he is the publisher of peace. And so, how does the good news that Nahum is proclaiming to the people, particularly in chapter 1, verse 15, how does that good news point us to the good news of Jesus Christ? And then thirdly, what's the only hope that we have in the midst of that? Because not only is God jealous and avenging, not only is he a deliverer, the publisher of peace, but he's a stronghold. So those three things, uh, in turn, as we look at Nineveh. First, the jealous and avenging God. Two weeks ago, we saw Nineveh spared by the Lord. So how did it come to this? A century before the people had repented, even the king. But now they're set to be judged and destroyed. So the question becomes, did they forget Jonah's ministry? In the ancient world, the primary way that you conveyed information, that news traveled, that history was passed on from generation to generation to generation was through oral transmission. You would tell your children who would tell their children and so forth. Each generation would communicate the history, the the religious practices, and what have you, from one to the next. And the Ninevites would have had to have discussed the ministry of Jonah for many years after. So this is a hundred years later, presumably three or four generations after the generations who had heard Jonah's message. And yet, here we have the evil ways, the violence of Nineveh returning. They, They forgot, they neglect the Lord who they'd clearly once honored and been humbled before. But what's hard about these verses is the way that they describe God. In fact, they are a hymn of praise to God, similar to our call to worship. So if you look back on the front of your worship folder, uh, when God delivered the people of Israel from the Egyptians, they got on the other side of the Red Sea and they sang this song that's on the front of your worship folder. It's just a portion of it from Exodus 15. They sing... The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And then, of course, in chapter 3, as Susan was reading chapter 3, David leaned over to me and said, these are great verses you've chosen. (laughs) You know, and, and I mean, they're there. But, but, but the, this picture of God does tend to make us a little uncomfortable, at least it does me, as I sat with these verses this week, looking over them, meditating on them. But 
I want to explore why I think that is a little bit. There's a modern impulse to view verses like these as referring to the God of the Old Testament. Oh, that's the God of the Old Testament, right? Uh, That's different from Jesus, the God of the New Testament. Or this is just the way ancient pre-modern people understood God. It was was very much a fear-based religion back then. People today are very judgmental of talking about God in this way, and they tend to be judgmental of the Bible and the way the Bible describes him. God is supposed to be a God of love. He's supposed to love everybody. The Bible says that, doesn't it? But the trouble is, even as we'll see in a, in a little bit, there's another side to God's character, even in the midst of, of uh, passages like this. And if you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity, I want you to know that even Jesus got angry, right? There are instances in the Gospels where he got enraged, where he got fired up. Not only that, the same little Jesus, meek and mild, who let the children hang all over him is described in Revelation chapter 19 at the end of the story of the Bible as a rider on a white horse who judges and makes war with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth who treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. The God of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament are one and the same, but I think we've got to go even deeper I think the real issue is that we don't like talking or thinking about God's wrath or anger. It makes us uncomfortable because our view of anger, our view of wrath is tainted. When we think of wrath or anger, we think of someone who's lost control. We think of someone who erupts in a rage, someone whose pride has been wounded and wants vengeance, right? I've been wronged, so my ego needs vindication. But the problem is that too often produces vindictiveness, Vengeance produces vindictiveness, and that's a description that's fundamentally contrary to the nature of God. The Lord's wrath is not like ours. It's not an irritable, self-indulgent outburst. God is only angry where anger is called for. You see that? He's only angry where, angry is, ca- where anger is called for. His indignation is always, always righteous. So the description of his character in the first six verses of Nahum is consistent with his character. His judgment for sin is judicial. And what I mean by that is, it's the king or the judge administering justice. He's meeting out the punishment according to what someone deserves. The Lord is only giving humanity, in this case, the Ninevites, what they've chosen. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 18, John says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and what? People loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. And it was no different in Nahum's day. Judgment on Nineveh is what they've passed on to themselves in their rejection of the message of a hundred years prior, the message of Jonah. It is, what, it is a judgment on them for abandoning faith and abandoning their following of Yahweh. What Nahum says in chapter 1 in terms of God's character, as well as what we read in chapter 3, where it really got ugly, in terms of how the judgment will be carried out, all of this reminds us that in judging and destroying this city, he is giving them their due because of the course they've chosen to follow. Did you hear that? He's giving them their due because of the course they've chosen to follow. Passages like this leave no room to doubt God's hatred of sin. Sin is 
heinous and gross to God, and it should be to us as well. And so I would tell you, sitting with this kind of stuff is good for our hearts. Because according to one Christian scholar, he says, quote, We are ever prone to regard sin lightly, to gloss over its hideousness, to make excuses for it. But the more we study and ponder God's abhorrence of sin and his frightful vengeance upon it, the more likely we are to realize its heinousness. And while we didn't have time to read through the whole book of Nahum, if you do, you'll notice that the essence of Nineveh's sin was pride. They came to have a God complex. They thought they were unstoppable. Anyone who came against them was mowed down, conquered, destroyed, made to serve them. Uh, Drew alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, that the Assyrian kings would decorate their halls with the skins of the people that they had conquered. Anybody who came against them, they destroyed, they conquered, they put in their place. And as much as some of you who know me know that as much as I think Apple products are great and cool, a couple of years ago, I read a biography of Steve Jobs. And when I was working through this, I thought of him, particularly this bit about the God complex. He had a God complex. And anybody who didn't agree with him, anybody who disagreed, who didn't share his vision, his dreams, his goals, what he wanted to do with the company, he mowed down, he destroyed, he fired. All because his pride was so galactically gigantic. And I'm afraid he was in a root for a rude awakening when he stood before the Lord at his death. Because look at verse 2. Excuse me, look at chapter 2, verse 13. And then again at chapter 3, verse 5. There in your worship folder, if you have your Bible open, look there. God says twice, Behold, I am against you. The God of the universe says, I am opposed to you. I am working to stop everything you are doing. You will not succeed. The Bible tells us that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And when an individual or a nation refuse to humble themselves, as ultimately Nineveh and the Assyrians did, the book of Nahum teaches us that God will not stand idly by. He will humble them by bringing judgment upon them. And so, for example, to pick up on a little bit different way of looking at an example given two weeks ago, if ISIS never humbled themselves before the Lord God, then God will destroy them as he destroyed Nineveh. And if you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, please hear me. God's wrath against Nineveh at this particular time in history is only a small picture. It's an illustration of the wrath that he will one day display in what the Bible calls the final judgment. See, every human being has a fundamental problem when they're born, and that is the problem of sin, pride, a way of living that seeks to go our own way, that says to God, whether you believe he's real or not, I am against you. And I need to tell you that if you live your entire life this way, never humbling yourself before God, God says, I'm against you and I will judge you. So please consider this morning, are you against God? Where do you stand today with this Lord that Nahum is describing? What's the answer 
to the questions he poses in chapter 1, verse 6. By the way, it is going to get better. (laughs) Some of you are like, oh my gosh. Um, It is going to get better. What's the answer to those questions, though? They're somewhat rhetorical. Who can stand before his indignation? Chapter 1, verse 6. Who can endure the heat of his anger? Of course, the answer is no one. No one. Unless you've been delivered from it. Unless you're humbled by his grace. And that brings us to the second point. The publisher of peace. See, there's a tremendous contrast. I mean, you think it's hard for you. I'm the one up here trying to, yeah. Been a challenge, challenging week. There's a tremendous contrast between the judgment facing Nineveh and the deliverance that's promised to God's people. It's here. Because in judging their enemies, God is delivering his people. That's why Nahum's name meant comfort, compassion, because God's message to his people was one of comfort. As I'm judging your enemies, I am delivering you. And so look at Nahum's good news. Chapter 1, verse 15. Behold, this is in the middle of all of this mess. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. The people are pointed up to the mountains, to one who is bringing a gospel. See, Jerusalem is on a plateau compared to the areas around it. And the Assyrians, around the time of Nahum, are slowly but surely picking their way through little tiny towns in Judah, conquering them subjugating them, and they're eventually making their way to the, Assyrian, or to the uh, Judean capital, Jerusalem. And in the years before Nineveh's destruction, Assyria had been slowly but surely getting there. Judah's completely powerless before their enemy. They are sitting ducks just waiting for the siege to begin. And yet here comes Nahum. And he says this. Look at verse 12. Of chapter 1. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, that is the Assyrians, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Now, Look at verse 15, the very next statement. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. You see, God's people are not charged with the responsibility of accomplishing their own deliverance. Instead, they are informed, they are given good news that they must believe That God has acted on their behalf. This dramatic sudden deliverance from Assyria as a fulfillment of this prophecy should convince God's people that his hand alone has been the source of their deliverance. Deliverance shall come from the oppressor of God's people by the sovereign intervention of God. The gospel of verse 15 is God's act on behalf of his people. It's news of a rescue. It's his rescue of them from the clutches of death. And our good news is so very similar 
only so much better. There's an enemy that wants to destroy us as well. Just like the people of Judah, we are powerless to defeat them. The enemy is like a prowling lion, the Bible says, ready to pounce and devour his prey. We have an oppressor too, an enslaving taskmaster who grinds us down with demands and destroys us in the process. But God has delivered us. Our good news, if you'll look in your worship folder, is why I included it as the assurance of pardon. Our good news goes like this. You, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The gospel tells us our enemy has been cut off. Death has lost its sting. We have been freed from the tyranny of evil. And just as was the case for Judah, our rescue is completely, 100%, the work of another. God on our behalf. We were dead, Colossians 2, verse 13 says. We were dead. And the Lord sovereignly steps in to perform his saving work of rescue. Paul says that the record of debt, that is our history of living opposed, of living against God, was nailed to the cross. The good news is that Jesus Christ actually became the record of debt. God counted our sins, our rebellion, our guilt against him. He received judgment. And on the cross, God the Father said to God the Son, hear this, on the cross, God the Father said to God the Son, I am against you. As if he were God's enemy. But there's more. There's more. The gospel tells us God is restoring us. Okay, look at this uh, uh, verse from uh, Nahum chapter 2. Verse 2, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Right? God is restoring us, making us into the majestic images he had originally made us to be. That we broke all the way back in Genesis 3. And through the Spirit sent by Jesus Christ himself, he is restoring us. Because of Jesus' work, the satanic forces, look again at the assurance of pardon, what Paul calls the rulers and the authorities, through Jesus' work, These forces who were once armed and threatening are now disarmed. They're shamed. God says, this is from Nahum, but think about it in the context of the good news of Jesus Christ. Behold, God says, I am against you. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Now he's talking to a city. He's talking to a group of people. But Paul says on the cross, he did that to the satanic forces. He publicly shamed them. And through the death of Christ, death itself died. And on the third day, Christ triumphed in rising again. Don't forget about the second half of verse 15, though. In light of the gospel of God's rescue, Nahum says to the people, rejoice, celebrate God's work, right? 
and then consecrate yourself. He says, keep your feasts, Judah. Fulfill your vows, because never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So there's a real terror when we see the indignation, the heat of God's anger, but also there's great comfort in the message of good news in the midst of that, right? But only comfort to those who've humbled themselves. Only comfort to those who realize they can't possibly rescue themselves. No one in Judah would have claimed credit for the destruction of Nineveh. You realize that? No one in Judah would have ever claimed any credit for the destruction of this mighty nation of Assyria. And Paul in Colossians, in our assurance of pardon, reminds us we can't take any credit either. God is the one who makes us alive. And I'd really be remiss if I didn't invite those of you who might be here and don't consider yourselves to be Christians. In the words of Psalm 2, verse 12, it's in our call to worship where the psalmist invites us to kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. You see, in humbling yourself, in submitting yourself to the rule of King Jesus, which is the imagery of kissing the Son, the promise of the Bible is you'll find a shelter. Not only from what the Bible says is the wrath to come, but from the storminess of life. And that brings me to the third and final point, the stronghold. And what's so amazing about this little book is that verse 7 is nestled in the middle of all that doom and gloom in chapter 1. And you could hear Susan soften her voice as she read that one verse. Because you're reading through, God is this, he's slow to anger, but he won't clear the guilty. He rebukes the sea, the mountains quake, the hills melt. Who can stand before his indignation? His wrath is poured out like fire. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. It's so easy to miss, and yet it's there. The Lord is good, but he's only good to those who take refuge in him. Our only hope is that in hiding in him and taking a refuge in him, especially in the day of trouble, uh, we can come against, we can be buffeted against the storminess of life, the things that we have to face. It's no coincidence that the goodness of God is consistently tied all the way through the Bible to his covenant fidelity, to his steadfast love. When the Bible talks about God being good, it's always he's good because he's full of steadfast love. And we have no more graphic illustration of that than in the good news that through Jesus Christ we can now have peace with God. A song we sing around here quite a bit goes like this. It says that hiding in Jesus we have a shelter in the storm when troubles pour upon us, when all our sins accuse us, when constant winds try and break us. I mean, does that not, refre- does that not make you just want a, a sigh of relief? Where are you taking refuge? Where do you flee? What gives you a sense of safety, of peace, of shelter? I would, I would urge you to hide to run into the stronghold of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you trust, though? How can you trust that you're going to be safe 
in the refuge that he provides. And this is where it gets even better. Look at the second half of that verse, verse 7. Nahum says, the Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And that's how you can trust that you'll be safe because he knows you. If you hide in him, he knows you. It's the same word that's used in Genesis when the Bible says that Adam knew Eve because it implies this deep affection and intimacy In the middle of life's stormy times, the truth that the Lord of heaven and earth knows the one whose refuge in him is the ultimate buffet. It's the ultimate anchor for our hearts, unlike anything or anyone else. Listen to what uh, Charles Spurgeon, famous pastor, preacher in London in the 19th century says, God knowing you means, and I quote him, that he concentrates his all-perceiving glance upon each child of God. Your father is looking at you, beloved, with as intent a gaze as if there were nobody else in the world but you. Yes, and no world either, but only you. Think how he would know you if in the whole universe there were nothing but God in you, and just in that way he knows you. He delights to know all about you, for he made you, and he new made you. You are a plant of his planting. He has watched over you and he has said, I will water it every moment. Lest any hurt it, I will keep it night and day. It is with the most intimate and intense knowledge that the Lord knows them that trust in him. And whether it's a stormy time in your life right now or relatively calm, does it not soothe your heart to know that that's the way your Heavenly Father looks at you. That that's the way your Heavenly Father knows you. If your refuge is in Him, if you've been humbled by His grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ, He says, I know you like that. When we say about someone, you know, they're really into that, what do we mean? Usually that they're passionate about that, that they have an interest in that that they're really committed to that. In fact, whatever that thing or that person is, it in some way controls their life, right? It affects their schedule. It affects their friendships. It affects their job. It affects how they go about everything in their life. And the gospel tells us that because Jesus was really into us, he made it possible for us to be really into him. And so now if you're in him, then every nook and cranny of life is affected. Now, I I know much of what I have said so far or this morning has, has been directed at those who aren't Christians, but Christians, I want you to listen up because the question becomes, as you're working through this and you believe, you trust, you know your faith is in the Lord Jesus, is the Lord your refuge only in times of trouble? Does being in Christ only matter when the going gets tough? You know, it's good that he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. So when I have a day of trouble, I'll run to to him. And I know everything will be okay. What the Bible would teach us here is God isn't a refuge you run into in stormy times. Rather, as you live and breathe united to him, you live in the stronghold. And out of the stronghold... You can face hardship with courage and confidence. 
Later on in Colossians, in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, a Christian is someone who has died and whose life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so pray with me. Uh, Pray that God would make us a people who, because we're hidden in Jesus, can courageously and confidently face life as we do all the things we're doing around here, whether it's planning a church whether it's moving to Nicaragua, whether it's having a family member in prison, whether it's struggling to parent an unruly child, whatever you are facing, the good news is that you face it in him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are humbled. We stand in awe of your mighty work of salvation for us, that you would take our record of debt and that you would really just become our record of debt. That you, by being nailed to the cross, would become an enemy of your Father. That your Father would come against you in that moment with all of the wrath, with all of the indignation that Nahum describes in those opening verses instead of us. We thank you for being the substitute for our punishment. But not only that, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that because you have stood in our place, you're now remaking us, you're now restoring (coughs) our majesty as your people. And we pray that you would grant us grace, that you would give us courage, that you would hide us in you so that we can, from the stronghold that is our union with you, face whatever life brings to us, and in turn, go forth from here to conquer, to serve in your name. We pray, Lord Jesus, for your sake and in your name. Amen. Uh, The greater the threat, uh, the greater the news of rescue is. Uh, If you were in Judah and you saw the Assyrian army right there, uh, and then someone came and said, Behold, somebody's bringing good news. Uh, Your enemies, O Judah, are defeated. Uh, Worship the Lord. Uh, to the degree that you realize God is coming against judgment, coming against sin and threat and judgment. Uh, And yet Jesus has come, and rather than God saying, I'm against you, uh, because he lifted his hand over Jesus and said, I'm against you, I now can raise my hands over you with a good word, a benediction, a promise that as you go from here, he goes with you, and you go in him, and he goes for you. Uh, So hear these words and receive them as I lift my hands over you to give them to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. (laughs)